guys, welcome back. We know it's rough in these streets and it's hard to find time to listen to your favorite podcast, so we are thrilled you're still tuning in to Melanated Faith. This week, we are going to be talking about a life-changing trip that Faith and I took together last year with Be The Bridge to Rwanda. So Faith, do you want to talk about the genesis of the trip and how it was different from your typical quote-unquote mission trip? Yes. So first of all, I love Rwanda. This was, I want to say my, I think it was my third time to Rwanda, maybe fourth. I can't remember, but um, I have a really big love in my heart for Rwanda. So for this particular trip that we went on, Tasha wanted those of us who had been a part of Be The Bridge, a few people, to go on a learning exchange trip to Rwanda, and we partnered up with African New Life Ministries. So the difference between a mission trip, which is kind of like the premise that we're going to go there, share the gospel, help people build some houses or do some things, and then um, take some pictures and we go. That's kind of problematic because sometimes um, people aren't actually working on the ground with the local leaders or church leaders and really helping to serve them. It's not really about fulfilling this Americanized um, view of how we went over there and helped those people, um, but more so of how can we be of service to people and what does that look like? So this trip, we were simply learners and observers. So we weren't coming in to fix anything. We weren't coming in to change anything. We were there to learn about the Rwandan culture. We were there to learn about African New Life Ministries and the work that they do and how we can be a part of serving them, learning about how um, they operate in the country of Rwanda. And that was just so beautiful. So the whole idea is to really be in a position to um, really, I feel like a posture of humility, to learn from other people in different countries with expertise and things that are different from us. And that's exactly what we did. So, Catherine, ah, Rwanda is so beautiful. I believe this was your first time going, right? Yes, it was my first time on the continent at all. Okay, okay. So, was it what you expected? And did anything surprise you? Um, It was not what I expected. I mean, I think getting to go in 2019, you know, was kind of the quote-unquote year of return, which is like 400 years from 1619, which the first Africans arrived in America. So, I felt like really special and honored to be a part of it, to be able to go to the continent in that year. And obviously, like, I don't know where my ancestors, what country in Africa my ancestors are from. Um, the likelihood is not Rwanda just because of where Rwanda is located in the continent. But Rwanda was so beautiful. It was so green. You know, it's like the author um, Chimamanda Adichie who wrote Americana and We Should All Be Feminists. She has this really great TED Talk called The Danger of a Single Story. And if you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. Um, but one of the things she talks about in that thing is how we, when she first came to America, she was surprised how people have one narrative of the whole entire continent of Africa, which is made up of all these different countries and um and I think as an African-American I was like oh that's not me you know like I don't think that like I know that Africa is like there are all these different countries and cultures and tribes and languages and it's all beautiful but I went to Rwanda it's so green it's very hilly it's called like the land of a thousand hills mm -hmm. um it reminded me we were primarily in Kigali which is where African New Life is like their headquarters um it reminded me a lot of like I had gone to Israel, like Jerusalem, um, maybe like a year before that, I think in 2017. So maybe that was two years before. And it had that same sort of um, vibe in terms of like cleanliness and people were like so friendly um, and kind. And I think just the excitement about um, seeing African-Americans, 
African-American Christians do like missions and there's a whole host of reasons behind that. Um, so that was, I think the big thing that would surprise me, I think was like the land and how green it was. Cause I think the picture in your mind is like, Oh, I'm always picturing like more, I don't know, desert wilderness. And there are, we went on safari. So we did see that, but that is not the city of Kigali is very, it's not like that at all. But it was what I expected in terms of just the warmth of reception of like the excitement to like see us and embrace and like talk about culture. And like, I, yeah, I I think just the esteem that people have for America there, I think was very evident. And I think also too, just for like African-Americans. And it just reminded me, you know, my big thing, you know, like the struggle against colonialism and that, it, you know, like it's global and like we've all been affected but it was so beautiful to be among all these like brown skinned people and not and like yes. have this experience of like just not being othered you know like of like oh we're together and like I don't have to like I don't know like can I go to this restaurant or like do I have to be on the lookout for people like expressions of racism or you know and I didn't and so that was freeing it was just it was a delight I love the group that we traveled with um so but yeah I think it was it was important I think uh to go and to have my sort of even American ideals like challenged and my brain expanded. And I think, you know, the conversation around missions in this country is, like you said, it's primarily like we are going to like save and offer something that they don't have there. Like they're so far behind us and they're and I think that's wrong. I think your point about humility is important because I was just inspired. I feel like I learned so much from them and like how they approach um you know, African New Life is uh, a ministry. So they start churches, they start schools, they offer medical care and just all these things. And so even their sort of model or philosophy of ministry of what the church is, I think was amazing and so cool to learn from. But you've been multiple times. This is your third trip. So um, was this trip different in any way? Did you see something you hadn't seen before? Or was it, is it just like all old hat? No, I think this trip was um, different because... It was really cool to see other people who hadn't been to the continent before experience it too. When I first went to Rwanda, I was 19, maybe, I'm not sure, 19 or 20. And um, I was with a predominantly white group from my university and I had a lot of, it was just a racist experience anyways. Um, they were not. You nice. should talk <laughs> and, about that. Um, tell us. We want to know because I think one of the things I hope that we like this conversation is about is like we need to reframe how we think about missions and how we think about traveling in other countries. <laughs> oh, girl. Uh. <laughs> no, get into it. Sp T T T T. <laughs> so I think, like, honestly, I'm not even going to lie to you. From that trip. And then, I mean, from that trip mostly, and then just where I'm at in life and what I've learned, I I don't think I'll ever go on a trip that's like a missions trip, like I'm going to go save people type trip. Um, I, I loved learning. I want to be in a position of a learner, especially when I go to a different country. And so I think that's a gift that I've gotten from being able to do that a few times with African New Life that has like really shifted my perspective radically. Also, when I was in Rwanda for the first time, it was there was only um, two black women on the trip. And in the beginning of the trip, um, the black woman who was leading us wasn't able to go due to some 
um, complications. So she missed the first like five days maybe of the trip. And I was the only black woman at the time in the beginning. And so I remember sitting in the back of the van. We had a van that was rented for us. (laughs) And back in that time, in like 2010 in Rwanda, they had a bunch of vans of different celebrities. And ours was a bright pink Chris Brown van with Chris Brown's face painted on the side of it. Now, y'all, I went to like a conservative um, Assemblies of God college. And let me just tell you, I was raised non-denominational. I didn't even know about denomination stuff. Even still, when people go into all their denominational things, I'm just like, okay, like it's kind of over my head sometimes because it just, I wasn't raised like that. I didn't know. So I was already in this world of faith space that I had never been in before and was confused about half the time. And then we, (laughs) and then we like are in Rwanda and with all these, you know, white people It's just me. We're in this bright pink Chris Brown van. But I remember there was a moment when it felt like the world stood still. And I looked around and everybody looked like me. And I was like, this is what it feels like to be somewhere where everybody looks like you. And it was like, I will just never forget that moment. It's just like time stood still. I was like, wow, this is what it feels like. And I felt so safe. I felt so seen. And I felt like... How great must it be like, to not have to worry about being the only one? So uh, that happened. But then I had, you know, the people on the trip, not all of them, because I have two friends that I'm still friends with to this day. We actually were just talking about this trip who are wonderful and were really great to me, um, you know, aside from our leader. And I still keep up with her, too. She's great. But some of the other people on the trip um, just said, you know, racist things to me, told jokes you know, um, about one of their animals, one of their grandmothers saying that their dog has an in-butt. You fill in the blank and thought that, and told me don't be offended by this joke I'm about to tell and then told the joke. And and then I was supposed to just, you know, be thrilled, I guess. So um, there was a lot of moments where it was like, you know, they're just serving Faith because she's black. It's just this because she's black. And a lot of stereotypical assumptions and we came there to do work at this community center and paint and all this stuff. But then all of a sudden, everybody was sick. People were, you know, fainting or just couldn't do any of the hard work. But when it was time to play and they wanted to see the kids and take a bunch of pictures with these black kids, it was like, oh, I just want to take a picture with the kids. I want to be around the kids and posting all these pictures on, on Facebook. Like, see, look at me, look at me, like, you know, look at me posting these pictures with these kids. And And it really, it honestly really hurt my heart because I felt like this is how they see black people over here. And they're acting like they're, that we as black Americans are so different, but we're not. And so I think that experience just changed a lot in me. And it really is one of the most like catalytic experience that spurred me into really like wanting to pursue justice, talk about justice, learn as much as I could, because I didn't have language to deal with some of the things that I dealt with there. And I wish that I did. Like, I wish that I I knew more and had some comebacks, you know, but I'm always that person that's like, you know, after the fact, somebody says something mean to you when you're like in the mirror, like, oh, man, I would have said, da, 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 da. why didn't I say that, you know? And so, um, so I think it was just, um, it was hard in that moment, but so healing to be able to go. I went in 2017 with a group of black women to Rwanda with Africa and we were 
um, with African New Life as well. And then this time, I think the most healing thing was we got to do so many other things in the community to learn about how they achieved reconciliation. And I say achieved, but like continue to work towards it. And um, I think that was so life-changing for me to see and encouraging, um, especially we have such a rough climate right now, but it was really great to see that then. So that's what I would say are like, you know, some of the things from my thoughts from the trip. And so Catherine, what did you learn about race and colonialism? Uh, so many things. And I think it's like one of those things where you think like, I think like the joke of like Rwanda, like Wakanda, like sounds very similar, but like this idea that like, cause I think Rwanda was colonized, colonized. <laughs> Rwanda was colonized much later than much and some other African countries and how that kind of just changed kind of trajectory or history. So, um, we were told that you know, Rwanda really, Rwanda and Burundi were one um, territory, but it was like, okay, we're all this one culture. And then um, the Belgian colonial authorities arrived and kind of were like, okay, Tutsis, you're better. Um, so you're better than Hutus um, because you have, you know, 10 cows. Like they told us that the idea of who's Hutu and who's Tutsi was basically around property ownership. And so Tutsis had more animals. So it's like, okay, you have 10 cows. So you're Tutsi. If you don't have 10 cows, you're Hutu. Um, and so it sort of the process of it, of the genocide and what was to come in the 90s, sort of the seeds of it were planted during colonial rule um, because there was this othering and dehumanization. And it was just really interesting because they kind of basically were like, they started making up things of like why Hutus and Tutsis were different, like supposedly facial facial features and all kinds of things. So then in 1962, when Hutus gained power, because they had been fed these all these things of like Tutsis being better and like this, then the 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 script was flipped so then Hutus all of a sudden were like telling Hutu children like you're better than Tutsis and the source of all of our problem is Tutsis and so in 1994 when the genocide began and like almost 800,000 within a couple not that many days I don't remember mm -hmm. um 800,000 Tutsis had been murdered um, you know, it had this disastrous effect. And so I think colonialism, I mean, like literally, I mean, this, that, in that sense, historically, um, created the seeds that fermented into this horrific human rights atrocity in the 1990s. And I also thought, well, one of the, the interesting experiences even the ongoing effects of that, I think because, um, you know, African-Americans don't travel as much and don't do as missions as much, like doing worship um, there, it's very much, that was one thing I was not expecting. There was, you know, walking in and being like, oh, we're singing Hillsong, we're singing Bethel music. And in a way that, like, the exact <laughs> way that, you know, that they would sing yeah. it there. And this is not a knock on the church there at all. And there is some beauty of, like, you know, um, going to a different country and feeling a part of the worship community but I think to me my concern from it was that like again you know because American and American culture and American Christians are held in such honor making other groups coming in and making Rwandans feel like the way in which they worship their traditional worship and or um, African American worship styles are maybe not as true to the gospel as you know, more white styles. And I, I think they were open. I mean, I think one of the mm -hmm. big things that came out of our trip is like 
um, creating more of those opportunities for those kinds of learning exchanges for African-Americans. Like I know one of the women that was on our trip um, who is a hairstylist had planned to go back and do trainings for them in their beauty salon. And so, um, but yeah, it really, to me, I think opened my eyes to more of like, and I, in there are a hundred reasons why African-Americans don't travel. I mean, the cost of it, I think we're so busy oftentimes ministering to our own communities because there's such, you know, trauma and need in our own communities we don't think globally but I do think that um, I was aware of you know there is an ongoing harm um, and to be more pan-African in my view of like liberation and reconciliation that it cannot just be you know what is going on in my immediate community Um, because I don't I don't think that reflects you know God's heart for all of us like he's not just for the American church and American black people's freedom right (laughs) or liberation and so just trying to think more globally about those those kinds of things and being invested in those kinds of things and um so I thought that that was a I to me that was like a big learning thing of like I didn't realize um just the extent of how what happened in 1994 could be traced to colonial authorities and um yeah and I yeah it was I learning about the genocide I thought was really a huge um because they're just it, just the commonalities of the Holocaust. I think one of the museums and memorials we were able to visit sort of made this connection um, of where they documented human rights atrocities across the world. And there was this sort of pattern that emerges of like dehumanization, othering. And then it kind of then then people are like killed. It never starts with violence. It always starts with words and language, which is why mm-hmm. we're so like don't say like this is why people police language um because it's not just harmless it's not to be like oh sticks and stones break my bones like no like these things these like racist things that you're saying these dehumanizing things that you're saying don't just they often don't just stop with words and so that was i think my one of my big takeaways in terms of like colonialism and you know um race um faith why don't what did you learn like what were your big takeaways i learned so many things but one of my favorite takeaways that I remember is the fact that um, Rwanda has like one of like the largest um, countries with women in legislature. And so um, it's like around 40. Oh, no, no, no. It's around like 64 percent are women, like 64 percent in their um, in the like in the lower house of their national legislature. And that's the largest in any country for for context, America has 19% women. So um, <laughs> I think the fact that they have so many women in leadership politically, when I learned about that, I was like, what? You know, and um, also you can't have plastic bags there and trash on the streets is not allowed. And that was all started by a woman. And Rwanda is the cleanest country in the continent of Africa. And it's so beautiful but they are like so meticulous and you can just tell there's women in leadership all I have to say is is women know how to lead okay we know how to get the job done but I love that even 
you know, the men even honor and respect the women that are in leadership. That's something that I noticed, especially when they talked about um, the different women in um, in government. And they were grateful and excited and happy to have their leadership. So I thought that was actually pretty cool. And I would say some of the other things that I learned, it's just really, every time I go there, I am so inspired by the resilience of the people and the strength, I mean, the strength of the women, they, especially when we do like go and visit the women in the villages and they're teaching us about their way of life. When I tell y'all we Americans are weak, we are not carrying water on our heads and out there in the fields doing the stuff that they're doing. Like, I mean, it is hard work. And sometimes with no shoes, they had no shoes on a lot of the time, just out there, just killing it. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I'm 100% weak, not a fit or equipped for this work. <laughs> and um, I need to be able to humble myself and say that. And so, I mean, I think sometimes now with technology, it's like, oh, you're such a good worker if you can do all these things and you're internet savvy and you're this and you're that. But there's like hard work and laborious work that people do that requires physical labor and not everybody is good. And so I am always inspired by just their strength. They're doing it. They are focused. And who's to say, I don't know, like who's to say that one way of life is better than the other, right? Like who's to say that if you have no electricity and you don't have a TV, then like your life is nothing. Like that does, one thing that I saw that I loved so much was the sisterhood they had, the sisterhood over cooking, over, um, you know, getting water from the river, like just the sisterhood and the community and the talking and all of those things, like those things cannot be taken for granted. And I think in our hurry up and go culture, we take for granted the moments of stillness and peace and simplicity. Um, because we've made everything so complex. So I learned a lot from them and, and learned a lot about needing to slow down and appreciate the little things. And, um, you know, you don't have to always be going on to the next and the latest and the greatest and all of those things because there's always a next. Yeah, I think your point of like when we got to do that and go into one of the villages and work with the women, I think their idea of neighboring and communal culture, right? Like we all sat down together and shared a meal and we got to do this activity where like we sang together and their kids were playing together and they're, you know, it just was like this sense of community, um, you know, out of tragedy or just the way that they were providing for themselves and their family. Like, I just love that. Yeah. When we got to work with them, they were like singing and talking and it's like, oh, you know, Faith and I are like, this is so hard. And they're like, oh, you know, but we're doing it together and like we yes. can do it together. And that sort of like, I love, I, I love that. And the fruit there, that banana, I have so never good. had a banana that good in my These life. These chemicals I, are messing us up in America. I can tell you that. What? Rwanda? I don't know what they, what's in the soil there, but those bananas delicious it's better than what we have here I know that <laughs> I know it was I mean I just it was so sweet I didn't I didn't I was like have I even <laughs> honestly it was like have I even ever had a real banana <laughs> probably not <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know it's like oh is this what life is I think I have been living a kind of half-life I love that because I do think we have a tendency to be like oh our life is so much better um, because we have all these material things but it was there was such a beauty in the simplicity in the community that I think we have lost um, because of technology that I 
really enjoyed too. Yeah. What would you say it was like when we got to meet the local governor, which was so much fun? Um, and also, what would you say um, that you learned about the way Rwanda um, is rebuilding like 25 years post-genocide? Yeah. So I think these things are tied together. And it's just going back to the thing you said, like we met with the local governor. He basically was like, it is in the Constitution that women are 50 percent of the legislature. And he basically said it was because during the genocide, women bore the brunt of the suffering where women were raped, their husbands, like all of these things. And he basically said, uh, I'm probably this is probably not a direct quote, but he basically said, you know, before the genocide, women weren't really empowered. It was mainly men. And you saw what the result of that was and he he said there's something about a heart of a woman when she is in leadership that it is about the community and the community well-being and so you know I think to me the biggest thing that I saw in our visit is like there is an attitude of these are the people that were specifically harmed by what happened part of our reconciliation or moving forward has to be that the people that were harmed have to be brought in have to be empowered there has to be a restitution made and and I think there's an honesty like there are memorials we went to like two different places um you know, and there is a telling of the story so that people don't forget, like, this is what happens when, Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like now, like there are no ethnic identity cards and it like, you don't ask people if they're Hutus or Tutsis, like that's just not, you're, you're not supposed to do that. And so there is like, I think the thing that I like loved is that there was a, like, this is our history. We're owning it. We went to a reconciliation village um, where now Hutus and Tutsis have chosen to live together. And the man that they elected as their mayor, you know, they put on a whole program, but, like, they each kind of shared about their experience during the genocide. And we were, I was, like, in tears. It was just, like, the most moving experience I've ever had in my life. But he basically gets up and says, I killed five, six people, um during the genocide and I'm so ashamed of that that I did that and I participated in that and yet here's they had elected him you know he was unanimously elected amongst everyone to be the mayor of the town and so it just was this beautiful picture of like redemption but also too it wasn't this sort of cheap grace or cheap forgiveness like you got a real sense of like people are still working through I mean 25 years ago there are people alive there are kids that Mm -hmm. don't have parents who were killed so there's this trauma there Um, so people are still working through that but I was blown away by the ownership of the fact that he would he didn't even introduce himself I feel like he said his name and then said, I did this, participate in the genocide. I went to jail to as part of my crime before he even said, oh, I'm the mayor and they elected me. It was like, let me own yeah. my part in what happened. And so I think that to me was the biggest thing is like, you know, it is hard work rebuilding and, and reconciliation is, is hard work. Um, but it can't really fully begin until people are willing to like own their part and own the harm. Faith, why do you think telling the truth is a critical in- ingredient for reconciliation? I think it's a critical ingredient for reconciliation because you don't know what needs to be reconciled if you don't know what's broken. You know, like, Faith. so, you know, like, how can you, how can you reconcile something you don't recognize needs to be fixed? 
And I think that's the problem. Like nobody, and I don't want to say nobody in a broad generalization, I'll say a lot of people are not willing to recognize that something is broken, that there is a problem and we need it to be fixed. There's a lot of um, wishing away and reasoning away um, that racism exists or that it is a problem still in America. And that is why reconciliation has been so difficult here. And reconciliation isn't just about a kumbaya, right? When, when we talk about being repentant and all these things, when you look at what the Bible talks about, about repentance, it's a turning away from. And I think that people can easily preach messages about repentance. But when we're talking about repentance and repair, when it comes to race, it's like, well, we didn't do anything. Our, um, you know, maybe our ancestors did it. We didn't do anything. Then if that's the case, then you must not have been reading in Genesis and Exodus and, <laughs> and seeing what has happened to generation after generation based on the sins of their parents. And, and that they still had to repent, you know? Yeah. And so I think that we really have to think about things critically when we're talking about reconciliation and why we need the truth. Because the Bible says the truth is what will set you free. And if you are not willing to speak the truth, if you are not willing to um, to ask the Lord and seek Him about the truth, then how do you expect for freedom to come? So asking and and thinking that saying, uh, you know, a blanket statement like it doesn't exist anymore and I love everybody is moving towards reconciliation. It isn't. And that's why we're still spinning in circles and in a stagnant place. So I think we as a country have to be willing to say the truth. I think it's kind of like how they've done in Rwanda. We were wrong. Genocide was wrong. We're not blaming the Belgians for what happened. They were a part of it, but we made the choice to act upon this. Yeah. And you are not going to hear anybody there talk about, oh, it's the Belgians' fault. That's why we got where we are today. Because they, you know, because of just simply because of everything they did, they recognized that they had an ownership and a part in, that they participated in that That ideology, right? That that hierarchy that was wrong. And they repented for it and have come together to move towards step of reconciliation. And I think people have to be able to do the same in America. I've participated in a system. It's wrong. I need to repent and go forward, right? So, and I think people are missing what we're saying as black people, um, as other people of color, which is we need to have the truth at the forefront so we can move towards healing. It's not about spinning in circles and looking at every white person and saying, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're awful. See, you did that, you did that. No, it's about a call of collective repentance and recognizing the truth of the sins of this nation and that we must truly call that out in order to move forward in um, grace and in healing. So- Catherine, what do you think the American church could learn from Rwandans and Africa New Life? Yeah, I mean, I think to just say, you know, one thing about what you were saying about truth, I mean, that begins with the accurate telling of history. Like, you know yes. what I mean? Like in every memorial we visited, it's like there's not one, there are no memorials to... Um, genocidal murders. Any of the killers. Right? <laughs> Any of the killers, none of the leaders. You're not going. They're not venerated. You know, when we, when we went to visit the governor, the government building, there wasn't a, a um, monument out front to the veterans of the Rwandan genocide. Right. Um, so I think even that, like, what are the monuments? What are the stories? What are the books that we're, we're telling? Um, what is the story we're telling through our history books about what has happened in this country and, and 
we don't have a common narrative. So I would say that would be one thing. It's just like we need to, I think the American church, like if anybody should be for the truth, we should be for the truth um, right. and not invested in um, sort of a whitewashing or downplaying of, you know, the true atrocities of what went on in this country regarding Native Americans were regarding in mm-hmm. Texas where I live and Mexican Americans and their lynchings and obviously African Americans. Like we need to tell the truth and we shouldn't be afraid of the truth. Um, because mm-hmm. I think one thing is like, just because that's where you started, that does not mean where that's where you have to stay. Right. And you can move forward and you can rebuild, which we've seen in Rwanda. Um, and then the, I think the last thing I would say is like, you know, there has to be part of repairing is you have to be specific about what went wrong and what happened. Mm-hmm. And then you have to address that harm. Um, and the thing is, one of the things that we learned while we were there is like once a month in Rwanda, they have like these communal days on Saturdays where everything stops yes. and people come together to rebuild, to build schools, to do road improvement projects, to do like um, like kids, you know, they'll have like doctors and nurses that do like vaccinations or checkups or whatever. And I think one of the things that's like beautiful about that is they're raising a ne- the next generation of Rwandans who will have not participated in the genocide to say this is a community and we're going to build our community together and so I just I love that idea of like we're instilling in this next generation like we're telling them the truth about what happened we're being specific about the harm and the repair but also we're building something new together um yes I loved. I thought it was really just really very beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. If you can go, I definitely recommend going to Rwanda. And I please support African New Life. I just love their ministry and what they're doing. Everywhere they start a church, they start a school. And we just met some phenomenal. We spent a day with the kids in their upper division, their high school. Mm-hmm. Um, phenomenal future leaders of that country. And so um, there will be a link in the show notes for how you can go and support the work that they're doing. Um, but we're. I was just so grateful to you and for Tasha to for organizing that experience it will just be I mean one of the highlights of my life always um okay guys now it is time for your favorite segment and ours go off sis where we talk about the thing that we're loving or thing that's a mess in the world and because at least so far this season I have gotten to go first it is time for us to hear first from faith faith what do you want to go off about I bless oh my goodness I am going to say the one thing that I am absolutely loving right now is the fact that I have challenged myself to get back into the routine of running. So I've been getting up and going in the morning just to run. And I'm starting off slow, so I'm reintroducing myself. So I've started off running a mile, but it's been really refreshing for me and challenging and um, a really great stress relief. So that's my bless, just finding ways to choose myself and... um, especially during this time when there's just so much hustle and and bustle and hurry. So that's just a way for me to be. And I have really benefited from that in giving myself that space. I think it's really healthy for me right now. And I also would say... The thing that was just that has been tough this past week has just been not only like Chadwick Boseman's death, but also just this explaining away of the experience of black people. And I see it so much, even from people in church who um, have denied or feel like, you know, we're just harping on something that doesn't even need to be talked about when it comes to race. And it's like, 
this is our lived experience. I'm so confused as to how people without this experience who are not being, you know, called racist names all the time, who are not being, you know, discriminated against can tell you what it's like to be black. It's just, it's not real. And so I think that I had been feeling a little bit discouraged and disheartened. And then of course, all that stuff with Chadwick Boseman. And so then by then I was just a weepy mess because it just felt like, dang, like our community cannot catch a break like we're just going through so much like it's like I've been grieving all of 2020 and and I just have I have no words um the only thing I I think I mostly feel is I hope people can have more empathy because if you're not us you don't know what it's like to be us that's what I had to say today um yeah um yeah so that's my mess is um, Chadwick Boseman's untimely passing. I just, it feels like a monumental loss for our community and mm-hmm. someone who was at the beginning, like the fact that he'd never won an Oscar. Personally, I think he should have won an Oscar or at least been he nominated for Get On Up. If you've not seen him play James Brown, I don't know what you're doing with your life, get on it. But just the way he, like, the way he carried himself, his embodiment of just like the beauty of black people i mean like way before he was t'challa he carried himself like a king and just like that regalness and like just like quiet seriousness i mean i went on a binge of watching just like a bunch of interviews and reading a bunch of interviews um after he passed away and it just so i don't know and i just i like love that like black people have such a rich history and culture and he was so well versed i think part of it because he went to howard in that and so i think he kind of loved you know that he played you know it was kind of like the joke that he's gonna play every famous black person in a biopic (laughs) because he played (laughs) jackie robinson he did james brown he did thurgood marshall um but just man what a gift and you know i was struck by like he got his first big break uh playing Jackie Robinson in 42 at 35 and then he died at 43 and he so like eight years and just the impact and I think what does it mean to live a life of purpose and meaning um even in a short period of time and even and even you know something people think movies and culture I mean I don't think this but I people are so dismissive of that like oh it's frivolous it doesn't matter um but I think he showed us it matters a lot to a lot of people and you can matter a whole bunch even if it's just something small um so that was a mess and you know I'm so thankful for Chadwick Boseman and his family for sharing and him and his gifts with us for as long as we had him. Um, amazing. Um, my bless is a little silly, but I love <laughs> pop music. Um, the new Katy Perry smile is so good. It's like her best album since um, Teenage Dream, I think. Was that the album? I don't know. Um, whatever California Girls was on that uh, she had been on a kind of a slump, but she, you know, Katy, you know, has settled into her life and is, is back. So um, I love that. And then I also want to just shout out two books that I think are really very important that have come out um, the last couple of weeks. Um, Esau McCall Reading While Black, which is just a look through theology and Christianity through the eyes of his black experience, like coming from the South. And um, he deals with like policing, like what would Paul say about policing? I don't know. It's just Mm -hmm. really necessary and crucial and critical because I think so often we're fed a very like as someone who loves theology, we're fed a very white narrative. So I think that book is really important. And then the last book I'll shout out is by Professor Martha Jones. It's called Vanguard. And basically it's 
towards the black woman's history of the suffrage movement because I think we tell a very white version of that history as well. Um, Mm. And there were so many black women, black Christian women, black church women that were like, "Uh, no, we will fight for our rights ourselves. So um, those are my things that I'm loving um, so far this week that have brought me joy in the midst of just 2020, don't take anything else from us, please. Yeah, don't take anything else. Even just while you were like talking about Chadwick, I'm like over here crying. <laughs> just like, I just can't, I can't hear like just hearing the positive things and like his life. Like I'm just, I'm still kind of a little bit tenderhearted about it because he did mean so much to us. And I think he was really like a hero in the community and a hero to little boys who love, you know, Black Panther and, you know, all of that. And it's not to say, okay, they can't recast somebody, but he was so, he embodied that, like you were saying, Catherine, in in so much of what he did. So that's why it was so special. Last thing I want to say, and then we're going to wrap this podcast up. Our team from Be The Bridge has worked day in and day out on the Be The Bridge people of color guide. It's called We Need to Talk, a BIPOC guide to healing ourselves. And we're so excited about it. There's six sessions and leader notes and just things to help you um, have a wonderful group and have this discussion with other people of color. We need to talk together and have family talk outside of the white gaze. And I think that this is the whole purpose of this. Like grab your friends of different ethnicities and let's sit down and talk together. Let's learn from one another, learn from each other's experiences. So go to bethebridge.com forward slash shop and buy your guide today. Hey, everybody. So if you don't know, we have a Patreon account, which means that you get to hang out with us and get some exclusive content. And we are just getting it started. So we're excited because we have a special episode where we are going to talk more about Black Panther, um, just the wonderful Chadwick Boseman in more detail and at length. So please join so you can get access to bonus episodes and some other things that we're going to put up there just for those who join our Patreon. Any amount is really helpful so don't let that hold you back if you only have a few dollars we appreciate it and um, we want to engage with you and we hope you love this new podcast episode that we're going to do just for you all so guys we are so glad that you have rocked with us for another episode please let us know if you decide to go to rwanda sometime because we would love to give you some recommendations but we will talk to you all next week